As you know, the Gospel of Luke records the same events, but Luke records it uh, from the standpoint of Mary. Matthew gives us the standpoint of Joseph. And we're going to start reading in verse 18. This is the account that we are given. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. When people come to a church service uh, like this, they often expect to experience something religious, especially if they don't know the Lord personally. They come in order to connect with religion, and often because something has taken place in their life that has made them very unhappy. Something has occurred that uh, all of their resources were not equipped to meet. Some problem has developed that they cannot solve. So they feel as if they need to turn to religion. And as a result, someone may experience something that uh, is so momentous for them, so meaningful to them that others may notice, and they'll say something like, hey, he got religion. This morning, I want to dispel any notion that religion can be helpful in meeting the deep needs of the heart. Because the passage that we just read illustrates the great contrast between the way that religion meets people and the way that God himself confronts them. Religion starts with the person, and it tells him that he needs to do certain things. He's hurting. Uh, He's needy. He feels uh, helpless. Well, here's a system that can be worked, and a lot of other people have done the same things, and uh, they've done them for years or perhaps even centuries. So here we have a a time-tested religion, and if you would just attach yourself to that system and begin to go through the whole routine, then you can also find peace and help for your problems. Of course, religion also provides for people's failures because the fact is nobody can uh, work those systems perfectly. And because of that, over time, 
Religion will often lower its demands and it will comfort people in their failures and tell them that, you know, at least you did your best and there's not much to worry about anyway. Just keep on doing what you're doing. But the gospel doesn't begin with the person and his problems. The gospel is an announcement of where God himself has begun. The gospel comes to people and actually reinforces in their minds that, yes, uh, you really are in deep trouble. In fact, you're in deeper trouble than you could ever imagine. The gospel then says to them that whatever happened to make their situation so hopeless, they cannot do anything to permanently fix it. The gospel tells people that they cannot begin with themselves and that their failures will not be overlooked. In fact, they, they can offer no uh, personal compensation to God. And there's no possible way for them to make up their deficit. The gospel comes and says your only hope is that God Himself will intervene in your affairs. And that He will do something for you. Well, this book that we're studying now on Sunday mornings is a book that announces to us the fact that God has indeed done that, and that this is the good news. In fact, uh, this book not only tells us that God has done something, but it also tells us where He has begun. It tells us that God has begun by keeping His promises. And some of those are very old promises. The first verse of this chapter, you remember, takes us back to the genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth and announces that He is the Anointed One, the Messiah or the Christ, as it's often translated. As the Christ, it says He is the Son of David and the Son of Abraham. These are two individuals from past ages to which God made certain unconditional promises. And so the gospel begins here by telling us that God is keeping His promises. To the oldest of those men, Abraham, God made him the promise that out of his descendants, there would come a blessing to all the nations of the earth. In other words, God's blessing would not only be given to this individual's physical descendants, but through his descendants, this blessing would flow to all of us who are not in the physical lineage of Abraham. I mean, God would be so good to all the nations of the earth that he would work out his plan through this man so that all of us could be brought into his presence and accepted there. That is an amazing promise, is it not? And then to David, who lived hundreds of years later, God promised that his descendants would always rule on the throne of the nation of Israel. So there'd be this blessing to all of the nations. That blessing would come through Abraham and his line. But then that line would eventuate in a ruler, a king. Someone who would have the power to bestow these promised blessings to Israel. And then by extension to all the nations of the earth. That was a promise 
that was made centuries before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. So this is what we were given in the first 17 verses of this chapter. It's a lineage that includes these two men and then works itself down to the verses that we have before us this morning when it says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was as follows. In other words, for all of these centuries, God has been working out the fulfillment of His promises through the timeline of this genealogy in order to bring into the world this king for all the nations who will sit on David's throne and who will bless all the people. So what is the good news? That God keeps His promises. Well, the passage that we have now before us this morning adds to that announcement of good news by telling us that the gospel begins with a miracle. The good news is the miraculous intervention of God into our affairs. And again, I want to point out that you have a profound difference between what you find in the Bible and what you will find in human religion. When you look at how religion has been shaped by human history, you can see that a great deal of modern religion has actually done away with the whole concept of miracles. And this is unacceptable for anyone who claims to represent God and His Word. In fact, if you throw out the possibility of miracles, you've just shut down the whole concept of there being a God at all. Right? I mean, a person who has supreme intelligence and power and who's not limited like we are with what we call the laws of nature, but someone who actually put these laws into action in the world and who rules over them for his own purposes, uh, you know, someone like that is more than capable of interjecting himself into human affairs and even into people's individual lives in miraculous ways. So any religion that teaches people that they are their own answer is a powerless and helpless religion. Now the gospel is the great and the glad tidings that there is a true and living God who keeps His promises and who does the miraculous in order to bring His own Son into the world. So this morning, I want to call your attention to verse 18 and preach on this subject that the good news is the miraculous birth. Maybe this morning you're looking for some ray of light. Something that satisfies the depths of your soul. Something that tells you that there is a God who knows and cares and that He's able to fix your own miserable condition. Well, the good news to you is a miraculous birth which stands really as a great illustration for us that there is a God who can meet the exact needs of your life and who will go to great lengths to keep His promises to you. Now, first of all, this miracle of the birth of the Messiah is hinted at before it's ever stated in the passage that we just read. It's hinted at. Look back at verse 16. And if you've read through the ancestry of Jesus to this point, then you have become familiar with a certain pattern. 
In the New King James Version, the pattern is that a certain father begot a son, that his son begot a son, and so on. In another version, uh, it says Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and so on. But did you ever notice that when you come to verse 16 and the mention of Jesus' birth, the pattern is suddenly broken? There's a deliberate change, and it's put in this way. And Jacob begot Joseph. Now, there's the pattern, but notice the change. Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Now, if the pattern had continued, you would expect it to say what? Uh, Jacob begot Joseph. Joseph begot, or was the father of Jesus. That's how it would have read. But the Holy Spirit did not record it in that way. In fact, the language in the text is very explicit. Uh, Look at the two words in verse 16 that follow Mary's name. Of whom? That is actually one Greek word in the text. This is what we call a feminine pronoun. Now, we have feminine pronouns in English, right? She, her. We have masculine pronouns, his or he become quite popular in our culture now to introduce yourself with your chosen pronouns so that everybody can know that although you look and act and talk like a man, that you decided you're going to be a woman, right? So your chosen pronouns are she and her, and it's telling the world that you're an idiot. No, just kidding. It's telling, <laughs> telling the world that you're confused about your gender. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Clearly, feminine pronouns are meant for biological women, my point. Well, in the Greek language, through pronouns, they would also indicate whether something uh, referred to a male or a female, and this here is a feminine pronoun. So, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, referring to a feminine person, of whom Jesus was born. Uh, In other words, Joseph was not his biological father, but Mary was his biological mother. Now, that change in the genealogical pattern is what Matthew is explaining beginning in verse 18. Uh, If you move right from verse 16 to verse 18, you can see how naturally it follows. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom or out of Mary was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, the birth of that person was as follows. And uh, you know, as English readers, we might have gone right over the top of that little hint in the genealogy that something is unusual about the birth of Jesus. But a Jewish reader would probably pick up on that. Uh, and now it's going to be explained. So the miraculous birth of Jesus is hinted at within the genealogy. Secondly, it is now announced in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, completely different from any other person in human history. It's a complete variation on the whole ancestry that you've just read. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So the first thing that is announced to us is that the miracle actually occurred before the birth. Scripture wants to begin 
with what happened when Mary was betrothed to Joseph in the months before the actual birth. That's when the miracle began. It was during this period that is referred to as the betrothal period. Now, sometimes people without marriage customs in mind parallel this with our period of engagement, and it is roughly a parallel. But the betrothal period among Jewish people was much more significant than uh, Western engagement tends to be in our culture. In fact, marriage among the Jews right up until the Middle Ages was a two-part process. The first step, which is also broken into two parts, was called the Kiddushin and the Erosin. The Kiddushin was the actual ceremony. The Erosin was the state into which the couple entered through that ceremony. The second part of the whole thing was called the Nisuin, or the Chuppah. That was the actual bringing of a bride into the home of the groom, or what we would uh, refer to as the actual wedding ceremony. Uh, So now they're married. That's the Nisuin. But before that is this betrothal, or the Erosin, period of time, that is entered into by the Kiddushin, the ceremony. That ceremony was very solemn because these families, as you know, arranged marriages between them. The parents of a man would approach the parents of a uh, marriageable girl, and then negotiations would take place until finally they came to an agreement. She might come with a piece of land or you know, a couple of cows or sheep or something like that. They had some kind of financial arrangement. And then the day would come for the actual kiddushin. So then you would have the, the ceremony. And uh, this would involve uh, the payment of a small sum of money by the groom to his bride. And then he would sign a document. And he would pledge himself to uh, love her and to be loyal to her for life. And once that ceremony took place, the official period of erosin began... And it lasted anywhere from 30 days as a minimum uh, up to a year. Uh, In our English version, it says they are now betrothed. They are engaged, as we would say in our culture. But the thing that made this so much more significant than what goes on in our engagement process is simply that from this point on, this couple is considered to be husband and wife. In fact, that bond could not be broken except by death or divorce. In other words, it would take either death or divorce to change that status. Today, of course, you get engaged simply by taking off the ring and then throwing it at the other person in disgust. Now we're no longer engaged. (laughs) That's the ceremony. Uh, Another significant aspect to this is that the couple were uh, not yet living together. Uh, There were no intimate relations between them. And if they were, uh, they were severely chastised for it. And if either one was physically unfaithful to their betrothed mate, they actually called it adultery. Of course, in our culture, outside of strict Christian circles, it's quite normal for couples to live together, even before engagement, certainly afterwards. But this was not the case in first century Jewish circles. All right, it's during that period of betrothal entered into by this solemn ceremony 
between Joseph and Mary that the miracle being announced took place. Now, what was that miracle, and exactly how did it take place? Well, we know when it took place, during the betrothal, how did it take place? That's what the rest of the verse is going to tell us. It says, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and now this clarification, before they came together, or before there was any intimate relations between them. And the importance of that phrase in the text is simply uh, that it completely erases any assumption that Joseph and Mary had violated the terms of their betrothal and been intimate with one another, which is what some people would assume. But no, this is the first of six indications in the text from here to verse 25 where God will make it quite clear to us that this was indeed a miraculous birth. Why was it miraculous? Because before the birth, there was this miraculous conception. Conception by the divine power of God. That's part of the great announcement of the gospel in this passage. Now, what means did God use to make this happen? Because if it wasn't Joseph, and it wasn't some other man who fathered this child, who did it? Well, that's found at the end of verse 18, which says, she was found with child, and notice this, of the Holy Spirit. That's the second indication in the passage that there's something miraculous about this conception. The first is the phrase, before they came together. The second is the phrase, of the Holy Spirit. And you can count six of these indications down to verse 25, and you can see how the Holy Spirit is just hitting on that note. He keeps making the point that you're reading about a miracle. You know, whenever I read this passage, I am reminded of the fact that God does things in the most appropriate of ways. Uh, on royal occasions, when a well-known member of the royal family is paraded through the streets, there are many things that indicate what is appropriate to both the occasion and the position. Uh, if you saw the coronation of King Charles III, you saw many, many signs that mark the appropriateness of a new monarch on the throne. Uh, from the ceremony itself to the clothes that the royal family wore and the crown and the scepter that he carried and uh, you know the parade of military personnel through the streets and the royal carriage and all, and all that kind of thing. Well, when God brought His Son into the world, He did not do it in an ordinary way. You know, sometimes we talk about the ordinary manner of His birthplace in a manger and the swaddling cloths in which He was wrapped and the common animals that were likely nearby. And we build nativity scenes to highlight these things and emphasize the humble entrance of the king into the world. And this is good and appropriate, but we often forget the fact that his conception and birth was anything but ordinary. Right? I mean, here you have a young woman giving birth. She has never been intimate with a man. It's a miraculous conception. It's a virgin birth. So what is the significance of God doing it in this particular way? Well, among other theological reasons, one reason is that it's simply appropriate for the coming of such a person. I mean, how should God bring His Son 
into the world in a way that befits him and his station? Should he send him on angels' wings? Uh, Should he send him on a chariot in the clouds? Maybe on the end of a lightning bolt? Well, remember that he comes while taking on our flesh. So how appropriate is it for him to be clothed with Mary's flesh, but conceived by the creative act of the Holy Spirit with no human father? That is a fitting miracle for the coming of such a person. In the wisdom of God, he comes born of a woman, partaking of our nature, and yet miraculously conceived. In fact, this is so miraculous that even today, with all of our medical advances, the medical authorities still want to call this a biological impossibility. I mean, 2,000 years later, this simply cannot be explained physically. That's because it is divine wisdom and power in motion. Presenting to us the good news that God has intervened in our affairs in a miraculous way. From the very beginning, He's been working out His promises and then bringing them to pass in such a miraculous an appropriate way that it just causes people to marvel. And for those who disbelieve it, well, they discredit it as totally outside the realm of possibility. But keep this in mind, anytime somebody rejects it on those grounds, all he did was highlight the miracle of it. Because they're right. It's not possible, humanly speaking. And they just agreed with you that it's outside the laws of nature. It has to be supernatural. Yes, it has to be God. Now, let me call your attention to a third point, and this is not stated in the text, but we can arrive at it through looking at a combination of passages. This miraculous birth is the very thing that made it possible for God to fulfill His promises to Abraham and David, while at the same time, He could be faithful to a curse. Now, this is amazing, I think. God, on the one hand, will keep His promises. But on the other hand, He will keep His curse. And it will be the miraculous birth that enables Him to do both of these things simultaneously. Now, we we know the promises God is keeping through the miraculous birth, right? We've been looking at those. We covered them already. Uh, Those are the promises to Abraham and David. We won't go through them again. But what is the curse I'm referring to? Well, I want you to look back with me at verse 11. Uh, You remember that the genealogy is divided into three sections. The second of those sections ends in verse 11, where it tells us that Josiah, the ancient king of Judah, became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time they were deported to Babylon, which occurred in 586 B.C. But I'm interested in that last name, Jeconiah. Jeconiah is another name for the king known as Jehoiachin in the books of Kings and Chronicles. So turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 22. And I want to read what God has to say about this last living Davidic king. Let me say that again. This is the last living Davidic king. Now, Jeconiah was not the last king. But he died last. 
This man was followed by his uncle, Zedekiah, but Zedekiah died before Jeconiah did. So Jeconiah is the last living royal descendant to sit on David's throne, and then they went into exile in Babylon. You got me? Uh, remember when the people uh, came back from Babylon, they still didn't have a king, right? Um, this man's grandson, Zerubbabel, became the governor, but he wasn't the king because they were still under Cyrus, the Persian king. And after the Persians were overthrown by the Greeks, they were under the, the Greeks. And when the Greeks were overthrown by the Romans, they were under the Romans. And when Jesus, the Messiah, came, they were still under the Romans, And in AD 70, as you know, the Romans leveled their city. They destroyed it and the temple and they scattered the Jewish people and there's been no nation of Israel until 1948. Still no king. That's why I'm saying this man, Jeconiah, the last living Davidic king. Yet remember that God promised that out of David would come a king who would reign forever. Well, we've just been introduced to that king. That's the announcement in Matthew. But here's the difficulty. This man, Jeconiah, was cursed. And I want you to see the nature of that curse in Jeremiah 22. We'll start reading from verse 24. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, and that's a shortened form of Jeconiah, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. Now, a signet ring was one of the king's most important possessions. That was the thing with which he sealed state documents. So even if you were that close, even if you were that valuable to me, Jeconiah, I'd pull you off my finger. And I'll give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those whose faith you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you. I mean, his own mom cast out with him. Into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land in which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Now, this actually happened in 597 B.C., 11 years before the final exile of Israel to Babylon. It happened in that year. Jeconiah was only 18 years old. He's a teenager. Does God care what teenagers do? Can he be so displeased with an 18-year-old guy, you know, sowing his wild oats, as they say, That he curses him. Yes, he does. I don't know what he did specifically. Scripture says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So this man and his mother were exiled to Babylon. 2 Kings 24 specifically mentions that his mom went with him. They're both exiled. And God said, you're going to die there. And they did. This man lived 37 years in Babylon and then he died. He never came back. He never resumed his throne. In fact, he was only on his throne for three months and ten days, according to 2 Chronicles 36. But there's more. Look at verse 28. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? 
Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they did not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. I want to pause on that for a moment. In Babylon, Jeconiah fathered seven sons. We know that because 1 Chronicles 3.17 names them. And yet here it says, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. Well, keep reading because in what sense will he be childless? Not in the sense that he won't father any children, but in this sense, a man who shall not, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper in this way, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So what was the curse? That no man from Jeconiah's descendants would ever sit on the throne of David, would ever rule in Judah. Now, put that together with the promise to David that one of his heirs would rule forever. And you've got this lineage in Matthew from David down to Jeconiah, down to Joseph, and out of that line is supposed to come the Lord of all who rules forever. And yet he can't be a physical descendant of Jeconiah because of the curse. You see the problem? He has to be a physical descendant of David or somehow in the Solomonic line, but he can't be a physical descendant of Jeconiah who is also a descendant of David in the Solomonic line. Well, the answer to all of this is exactly what we've been considering this morning. I mean, how is God going to get out of this one? Let me show you, and I'll piece it together quite quickly. It's easy to understand. In the Gospel of Luke, we also have a genealogy. But in that genealogy, the line is actually traced from David, not through Solomon, but through another son named Nathan. And then from Nathan down to Mary. In other words, Mary is also a physical descendant of David. And out of Mary was born Jesus the Messiah. You remember that feminine pronoun? That was important. So here's the miracle. It isn't just that the second member of the Godhead is emerging from her, but that the miracle is in the conception. The miracle is God taking flesh, and in this case, He's taking Mary's flesh, or flesh that can be traced back to David. So yes, He is a physical descendant of David from Mary's line. But at the same time, He has to be in the royal line. But not physically, because none of Jeconiah's descendants can ever rule on the throne of David. How's God going to work all of that out? How can He fulfill both his promise to David, and yet keep the curse intact. Answer, have a young woman marry a physical descendant of David through Solomon right down through Jeconiah, but have her come into the marriage already with a child, and a child that is conceived in purity. God does this through the miracle of a virgin conception. It's a new creation by the Holy Spirit that includes Mary's own physical flesh 
And yet he joins David's royal line when she marries the descendant of David through Solomon, a man named Joseph. I put a little diagram so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. I mean, Joseph, you remember from the last verse of chapter 1, keeps her a virgin until the Son of God is born. And then he takes that son to be his own. He adopts him into the royal line. And yet Jesus is no physical descendant of Jeconiah. Now what is that but a miracle? The announcement that you have in Matthew 1 is just stupendous. When you consider the background to that scripturally. I mean, that whole genealogy which strikes people as quite dry. And and it is dry when you read it without understanding. But the whole thing is there as a statement. It's an announcement about the faithfulness of God to His promises. So, when you come to the birth of Jesus in Matthew, what do you find? Well, you discover that there's a variation in the genealogy. That tips you off. That there's going to be something unusual that's going to happen. Well, it is. And it took place long before the birth. It was a conception by the Holy Spirit. And it enabled God to be faithful to His curses as well as His promises. Don't limit God. God will do just as He has said. He'll be faithful to the covenants that He has made. He will keep the curses that He's brought upon the race. And honestly, you know, when you, when you understand the human condition and the position that every single person is in, you know what? We're all in the same shoes as poor Jeconiah, right? We are all under a curse. The psalmist says that we were all born estranged from God. He writes that we come out of the womb speaking lies. It's in our nature. It's because we have been cursed by God. You ever feel that curse? You ever feel it in your behavior? Doing things you don't want to do? Not doing things you should do? You ever recognize that curse in your sense of hopelessness? In your fallen thought patterns? In your emotional instability? You ever cry out in pain because you're cursed? And everything you touch seems to turn to dust? You just make it worse. Let me tell you something. Religion is helpless against that. And there's certainly no answers if you put it back in my hands. You somehow ask me, I've got to deliver myself from the curse of God. That's impossible. What I need is exactly what was needed at the beginning of this magnificent story. What I need is a miracle. I need the intervention of God. I need an interruption in the normal course of my affairs. I I literally need a bolt out of heaven. A life-giving bolt. This is what the Gospel is announcing to us. God has been working on it from the beginning. And He sent that bolt when He brought the Savior into the world. When you call on Him to be your own personal Savior, He releases you from the curse. Because at that point, a new creation is birthed. And this 
is the wonderful difference between any religion and what the Bible actually announces to you to be the work of God on your behalf. You always want to remember that this miracle is for your benefit. We are told in the passage that his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's the miracle that I need because I can't stop sinning. And that is the miracle that you need. And that is the miracle that is announced in the miracle of the gospel. Let's bow for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, just thank you again for the gift of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the answer to all of our sorrow, all of our sadness, all of our pain. He is the answer that we, many of us, have sought and found. And we thank you for the peace that comes through his sacrifice. Lord, if there's anybody here who does not know this peace, Lord, may they find him to be the answer and submit to him as their king. And uh, we ask that you would save and may that life-giving miracle be seen and heard and be a testimony among us. We thank you, Father, and we praise you for the passage that reveals to us the miracle of of the new birth and the birth of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing together as we approach the Lord's table. We will be celebrating one of the most important or the most important implication of the virgin birth that we are studying. That there was one